Hello, everybody. Morning. Morning. I just want to let you know, my name's Corey Smith, a uh, member here at Edgewater Baptist Church, and uh, you guys have blessed me with the opportunity to be able to preach over this passage today. So I want to thank you all for that. Um, we can start. Last week, you all heard from Bill about the church in Smyrna in the midst of its persecution, and you've heard some kind of allusions to it throughout our worship now. Now, they went through much, much persecution, and they endured in that persecution. Although they were going to go to the church of Pergamum and see what it looks like to be in the midst of the persecution, and instead of holding on to God and enduring throughout it all, having one hand on God and using the other to look for idols. Something that we can sometimes kind of agree a little too much with. So, we know that this letter is a letter of warning. And this letter kind of introduces us to this field where we notice that we are in a war. A spiritual war. And each day we enter into new battles, new struggles, that tempt us to start to grasp for those other idols. But it's during those battles we ask ourselves, will we make things easier? Try to dwindle how hard it is and grasp for the idols? Or will we look to God for strength and hold on only to him? Well, some in the Church of Pergamum fell prey to giving in to these supplemental ideas these supplemental teachings that were given by the Nicolaitans and by Balaam himself. They were in the midst of battle. And out of fear, they began to compromise their own beliefs. So as we dive into this letter, we'll see, and you may have noticed as we were reading it, it follows the same general order that the other two letters that we went through had. First, there's this description of Christ. Then there's the commendation for the church. Then we go into the warning or rebuke, and he ends it by giving hope. Description, commendation, warning, hope. Right. And through those four things, we will notice four points that will lead up to our big idea. First, Christ's power that calmed the storms is ready to come forth with precision. Second, Satan works against the faithful ones. The third one is that culture tempts us with solutions that appear to be helpful. And then the last one, Christ's victory in the war is our only sustenance. All of this leads up to our big idea, and that is, in hard times, cultural solutions appear helpful, but Christ alone sustains us. So let us prepare... Let us pray as we receive the words that Christ has for us. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for letting us come here and gather to worship you, Lord, without the persecution that these churches that we read about had. That we have the freedom to do so. But Lord, we hear a warning coming from you in the midst of this 
to not grasp on to idols as they did. So Lord, let this word, let your truth permeate our hearts. Let your spirit work in this place. And Lord, let it ultimately lead us into a total and full dependency upon your son and the gift that you have given from him, the way that you have demonstrated your love to sinners and made them saints. Let us see that in the letter that you have today. And let us join together to hear the word that you have for us all. We love you, God. And we pray this all in the name of the righteous one, Jesus Christ, your son. Amen. So we start off with the first point. Christ's power that calms storms is ready to come forth with precision. Here's our description of Christ as he opens his letter to the church of Pergamum. He says, I am the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, why would this be description that he says? What does it mean to Pergamum? What does it mean to us? We can look into this by seeing a couple of the descriptions of the church to Ephesus and then the church to Pergamum. In Ephesus, if you think back to that sermon, he tells the, them that he is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Pastor Bill pointed out that this showed the people of Ephesus and us today that he has a firm grasp on his people and he will not let go, even in the midst of this rebuke. All right. And then we move on to the church in Smyrna. In Smyrna, Christ calls himself the first and the last who died and came to life. In the midst of much persecution, the church of Smyrna was comforted by Christ, letting them know that even though Satan was at work in this place, he was the one that was over top of it all. And it was through his death and resurrection that he thwarted Satan's plans because he had the first word and he's going to have the last word. So, as we look into chapter 2, verse 12, we see that now we're talking to that same one who has the sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And this is the description that he gave to the church in Pergamum. And we think of the first two descriptions and you think of the comfort that they provide, the hope that they provide. And you think of this and you think of his power and his might. The sword shows how strong he is and he's ready to enter into battle for us. Right? And then it also shows with the two-edgedness, he's not coming around just hacking willy-nilly wherever he wants. He's acting with precision. This is our God. This is Christ coming down to fight for his people. And if we don't depend on him, it can be a very scary word to hear. So, as we go forth, we start to see this is how he opens up his letter to the church to Pergamum. And this leads us into our second point. And that's that Satan works against the faithful ones. So we read in verses 13 through 16. It's on page 1029. Christ says to the church, I know where you dwell 
where Satan's throne is. You ho- yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So he starts off with his commendation. And the first all as well. He goes to, to depict his power, commending the church, and then tells them that, you know what, I know of your circumstances. Circumstances that were similar to that of the church in Smyrna, where they endured tribulation and poverty and slander. And the church in Smyrna was told to be faithful unto death. And so, as they hear these words in Pergamum, you know, in Smyrna, Pastor Bill told us about Polycarp. And if you remember, he tells the story of his martyrdom and how it gave strength to the people in Smyrna. But if you also remember, that was after John wrote the letter, years after. Now you have the church of Pergamum hearing these words, that they must be faithful to death, and they have someone that they actually can tangibly, tangibly think of. That's Antipas, his faithful witness. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Antipas, but what we do know comes through tradition, and that tells us that he had a painful death in that. So as the Church of Pergamum hear these words, they're thinking of him, where we're told that he was put inside a brazen bowl, had a fire lit underneath him, and was there roasted to death, for he held fast to the name of Christ. And Christ commends the church that even after seeing that, even after seeing this painful death, they still held fast to his name and were not scared. They could trust in Christ. Even though his death was not as fantastic of Polycarp's, it still inspired them to stay strong in Christ. This is the commendation that Christ gave to the churches. And he says that in the midst of this, you sit in Satan's throne. And so we got a couple of things that come from that. First, we might ask, what is Satan's throne? Well, there's a few ideas. You know, it could be the imperial cult that Pastor Bill was talking about last week and the week before, where the people of Christ's church were then told that, well, actually all the people under the Roman guard empire were told to start worshiping Caesar as Lord and declare that he is Lord. Go to the parties, go to the feasts that are making sacrifices to Caesar and committing these horrible acts. We're also told that there's another thing that this could be. Uh, Pergamum itself was a city that laid upon a hill. Right? And at the top of this hill, it overlooked the rest of the land. And on top of that sat an altar to Zeus, a temple to Zeus. And this temple had a really 
interesting layout where it had pillars holding up the roof, going down like that, and then going in to meet. Where you get this depiction almost as if somebody could sit there with a nice little armrest on his throne. That's another thing that they may have been thinking of. And one of the other ideas that comes is built into this, this hillside was also an amphitheater. And that amphitheater kind of shows and can be seen for miles to see the, well, that looks like Satan's throne built into the side of this hill. Right. And you start to think, well, I, I start to think, I should say, um, what if in that amphitheater, that's where Antipas was killed? Right at the feet of Satan's throne. Showing this stark contrast of here is where Satan is doing his work. Trying to put fear into the people of God. And here is Antipas still holding strong. In this city, there were two opposing enemies. All right? All built into this one little city. So, many of them stayed strong in the midst of all these trials and temptations. But there were some that were tempted to compromise in order to minimize their persecution. And that leads us to our third point. Culture likes to tempt us with solutions that appear helpful. Culture likes to tempt us with solutions that appear helpful. So in Pergamum, Christ points out that some were holding to the teaching of Balaam. Now, who is Balaam? You can find his story in the book of Numbers. And within that, you realize that he was a false prophet, one that said he could speak for any and every God, even the God of Israel, which leads us to know that you can't speak for all gods. There is only one God. And so Balak, the king of Moab, noticed this and went to him for help because he feared the Israelites, for they were going around and conquering the people in his land, right, surrounding him. So he goes to Balaam and asks for help, and Balaam showed Balak how to defeat the Israelites through convincing them to worship false gods and whore with the Moabite woman. He gave them false teachings, let it infiltrate into their minds, into their spiritualities, and give them, you know what, you can hope in these other gods too. Look to them for strength. You've got your God over here, well, your other hand can grasp over here. That was the teaching of Balaam. And many of the people, or some of the people, I should say, in Pergamum were holding into that teaching. And not only that teaching, but they also held the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And with the teachings of the Nicolaitans, if you remember the sermon on the, the church in Ephesus, they were the ones who would blend Christianity with cultural religions. You know, they did so purposefully, saying that we have freedom in Christ. So participate in these things, and you won't fall into as much persecution. Go ahead. Join the banquet praising the emperor. You can praise God after that. You know, it's okay to eat food that they give there 
If, if you don't, well, they, they may do the same to you as they did to Antipas. So just follow along with them. You know, while, while you are there, go ahead. Say, Caesar is Lord, uh, along with everyone else, because God knows that Christ is the true Lord. What does it matter if you say Caesar is? There was compromise for security within these some in Pergamum. But Christ says, therefore, repent. Do not fear the one that kills the body, but fear the one that can kill the soul. When times get hard for the some in Pergamum, you know, they didn't hold fast to Christ's name alone, but they instead looked towards their culture and created other idols to grab onto too. They found supplemental solutions to their problems, to their hardships, to the many battles that they endured each day. You know, Balaam taught them that they could worship other gods. The Nicolaitans twisted words and said that they were free in Christ to do anything that would help them. And we think ourselves, what do we do? How do we reach for God and use our other hand to reach for idols that we find in our culture? We don't have to think for long before the flags start to pop up into our heads. All right. You can think, are we the ones that trust in our political party to solve the evils of this world? If so, repent. You know, there's also the idea that we as a whole church, not just in Edgewater, but all over the world, especially in the American church, struggle with watering down the gospel in order to bring more people for church success. We grab onto that idol of success through numbers. Now, I don't really believe that our church struggles with that this much this that much right but if there are some of us who independently struggle with watering down the gospel or depending upon our own charisma or not telling the whole truth of what it means to be a Christian in the life that follows afterwards instead of depending upon the work of the spirit in that individual's heart And I say, let us repent. Now there's one trap, one idol that I would like to emphasize today and look upon more together with you. This is the growth of culture and our idea of accountability. What do I mean by that? How do we go forth when we see sin taking place in another brother's life, in another sister's life? Do we take the ideas of culture 
Or do we hold on steadfast to God's word and what we hear from him? This comes from the passage itself. I want to show you this. Think back. First, we have the commendation. You know, you all are holding fast to the name of Christ in the midst of this persecution. But some are still falling into these false teachings, reaching up for these idols. Therefore, all of you are receiving this warning. Right? All were accountable. All were coming forth and receiving Christ's word, saying, help your brothers to repent. Commendation for all. Some were warned. That means all were warned. So, with this, speaking to the accountability that we have as brothers and sisters for one another, you know, when we think of seeing sin in another person's life, it's not something that we want to shy away from. Right? And in general, there is this growing attitude that we should not confront individuals about wrongdoings. <clears throat> meaning that the person who would confront is falling prey to an overly accepting love. If we're scared to go forth and try and draw our brothers and sisters back to Christ, we're falling into this overly accepting love. And what I mean by that is you get these phrases, you get these sayings that we've all heard maybe as jokes or even truly from someone else. You know, you do you. I can't judge you. You just keep doing what you're doing uh, because you don't need to change. Right? We should have an accepting love of brothers and sisters, but we want to make sure that we don't have an overly accepting love of brothers and sisters. Right? And if you remember previously, Pastor, Pastor Bill stated that love without truth is hypocrisy. But well, there's another way that we can fall. We have this overly accepting love. But then we have this attitude that reacts to that and says, you know what, we need to go forth and just all that sin, let's throw truth right on it, let's throw the hammer down. You know, that person that's right there, we don't need to consider about them. We just need to take care of that sin and bring truth to it. It's an overly tough love. We need this balance. So if you have this overly accepting love, you have that love that is without truth and is therefore hypocrisy. But if you have this overly tough love, we have this truth without love, which is cruelty, as was stated before. So then we realize that there is this confrontation that's demonstrated to us by God. You know, in his word, we remember stories like that of the woman at the well. Or we can look about Christ telling us how to confront a brother that sins against us in Matthew. First grab the brother, then go and tell another if he does not repent. Then go before the whole church. 
right? We also get ideas of saying and listening to Christ. Do not go before a brother without acknowledging the plank in your eye to confront the speck in theirs. There's this idea of humility. This confrontation we will call brotherly love. So you have this overly accepting love. You have this overly tough love. And then you have the love that Christ is telling us of. And that is this brotherly love. Now, not only should we be careful to go in and help confront love, but we must be careful to receive this confrontation ourselves, receive this brotherly love from one another, especially in the case when it comes to church discipline. Now, for those of us who are members, we can think back to our covenant that we spoke before, before the rest of the members saying that we commit this church to be our church, Edgewater Baptist Church to be our church and accept the caring ministries and discipline of this church. So as members, we, show, we have audibly shown this yearning that our brothers and sisters here with us today will come around us if we start to be enticed by sin, if we start to be blinded by the path that we are on, and say to us, Corey, come back to the love that is calling you. Come back to your Lord Jesus Christ. If I was to find myself yearning to dismiss my brother, or if we, any of us, are finding ourselves yearning to dismiss our brothers, we want to make sure and check ourselves that we aren't looking for an overly accepting love to come towards us. Or a tough, overly tough love to come forth. So what does this look like a little more tangibly? Right. How do we joyfully seek discipline? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> if you have been within the membership class this within the past five years or so, or maybe less, I don't really know. I took it a couple of years ago, or a year ago. Anyways, they give you this book. Right here. What is a healthy church member? Very practical, great book for us to look into. And in it, it asks that exact question. How do we joyfully seek discipline? Right? It gives a few answers. So it tells us that we should receive the word of God with meekness. In a couple of ways. So when we read the word of God and we hear what he has to say to us, right, we, don't, we need to check ourselves and say, am I looking to this word and trying to find excuses for my behaviors? Why I've fallen into this sin? When somebody's preaching up forth, when Pastor Bill comes up here, or Pastor Andy, or Jorge, or anyone else who's up here, comes forth and says something, are we first defensive? Or do we humbly go to God in prayer and say, Lord, either humbly make me humble or give me wisdom? It's one of the ways this book tells us. There's another one. It says, we must learn to recognize that chastisement 
is evidence of God's love. So when we go to a brother and we go to confront them, we do not think that, you know what, this is truth that needs to be dealt with, or sin that needs to be dealt with through truth. We don't go to them and say, you know what, you do you. We go to them and recognize that they are children of a child of God. And that God is working for them. And at the same time, we have a humbleness and realize God is working on us through this. And then finally, after the whole process of going through discipline, whether it's church discipline or a brother coming and confronting or a few brothers coming and confronting, you know, we can't forget what has just happened after we have defeated this sin together. We have just gone through a battle in which we live in this world where Satan is attacking the ones who are faithful to God. He is trying to draw us away from our Lord and say, look at this little idol over here. Doesn't that look beautiful? But our brothers and sisters, the Spirit of God has worked through them to bring us back to the one true love that we have who will always reign, who will always have the power, who always has us in his hand and who is over top all. And we rejoice, brothers and sisters. We rejoice and give God thanks that he has worked in such a way. And give God thanks that he has sent his son, that he does not account those sins to us, but yet says, Christ has died for you. We have just endured a battle when we encounter these situations. And when we come through true to Christ, we must thank, thank him that he has pulled us out. Again, what is a healthy church member? If you don't have it, look into it. Not a bad book. And uh, we also have one copy in the library too, so you can pick one up there. So, I want to tie this back to the passage again and let us think a little more on this, right? When we come to confrontation and accountability, we want to stay true to God's word, stay true to Christ as he calls us towards him and the loving discipline that he has for us. And we don't want to overarch and start to reach into this overly accepting love or this overly tough love. But that would be easier, wouldn't it? Just like the people in Pergamum started to look towards other gods, started to maybe praise Caesar and to get away from persecution. Sometimes we want to grasp onto that overly accepting love and say, it's all covered. He'll be fine. How much easier would that be? How much harder is it to confront the brother in a loving, Christ-like manner with humility going before and saying, You know what, brother? I have seen that you are struggling with pornography. And I just want to let you know that the, the joy that you get from that, it's not as long standing as the joy that you will get from Christ. Come back, brother. 
Let me walk with you through this. Come back to your Lord. And take the steps with him. It's harder. But it's what Christ calls to us to. So if we find ourselves, if you find yourself falling into these temptations of holding true to Christ and recognizing that it's sin, but also going up and being overly acceptive or overly tough, then I say, brothers and sisters, repent. This is the warning that Christ gave to the people of Pergamum. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon in war against them with the sword of my mouth. The power and precision of his sword is something that we want to make sure to weigh heavily. Not only for ourselves, but also for the brothers and sisters that are sitting next to you today. Brothers and sisters, we have been warned. We must, must check our faith for impurities. And remember that what he's asking us to do here, what he's calling them to repent for, is not a call to earn their own salvation. It's not what this is. Christ already earned it for, these, for us, for them. Right? Christ came for sinners because he loved the sinners before they did anything right. And now he gives to saints in order for us to endure through these battles, through these temptations. So that brings us to our fourth point. Christ's victory is the only sustenance that we have. Verse 17 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it, a stone that no one accepts except the one who receives it knows. This is the beauty of the work of Christ. You know, he doesn't just warn us, come before us, and leave us in that pitfall of darkness, right? No, he provides hope for us. To the one who conquers. Conquering does not mean never mixing our culture with our faith. Conquering does not mean that we never lose these daily battles. No. Conquering means that we will go back to Christ. Our brothers and sisters will take us back to Christ. We go to him in prayer. We go to him in his word. We go to him through our brothers and sisters. And we find assurance and rest. Remember, Christ has already endured these battles. Christ has already endured this temptation. And he had the strength to do it perfectly and win each battle. And now he's here inviting us to partake in this too. You have this hidden manna reference that you get right out there. In verse 17, He will be given the hidden manna. This is what he's saying. Christ is offering us his manna. 
just like the manna that was given to the Israelites when they were wandering in the wilderness. Every single day, they received this bread to give them life, to give them support. And each day, it was only enough for that day. Christ now stands here and extends to us his manna to give us strength and support. The strength that he had to endure the battles, he now gives to us to endure our battles. Right? He sits there and says, Today, you will encounter more temptation, more grief, more hardship, and want to turn to the easy things of this world. But here, take the strength that I am giving you. It's the beauty of this manna. It is a daily strength given just as we need it. And he's offering it. So brothers and sisters, when we take that temptation, when we find ourselves in those battles, look to that manna for strength. Look to that Lord for strength. Don't reach with two hands. Go both straight directly to him. Right? For this is another thing that he is referencing to this manna. Not only is it a daily sustenance, right? But it also shows us that he is inviting us to this heavenly feast in the end. We endure all these battles. We become weary now in these days. But in the end, Christ has a nice feast waiting for us. Where all we do is feast upon the strength and the righteousness and the goodness of our God. And dwell with him forever. We get this as we see that stone reference, right? There's that white stone. As John was writing this letter in his time, a white stone was given to people as they were invited to banquets. That was their token in. Christ is offering us his token to come in. That name reference, I don't know what your name's going to be. It says it right there. But I do know that whatever the name is, it gives us hope now that we will be a new creation in Christ. These battles that we have succumbed to, these battles that we have grown weary from, the battles that we did not win every day, they are behind us for Christ has won the war. So brothers and sisters, remember, we sit here in the midst of a spiritual war. What are we going to reach out for? Things of this world will offer quick fixes. But it is our sustenance comes from Christ alone. So, in hard times, as you find yourself in battles, whether you win or lose, remember, the next one that comes, the cultural solutions appear helpful. But Christ is the only one that sustains us. Thank you.